the 87th Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mysteries, the genre-defining series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast is all about book number 27, Let's Hear It for the Deaf Man. I'm Paul Abbott, and to review this book, I'm joined by... Two bank heist caper patsies. That's Mr. Morgan, unwilling participant but too scared to get out, Brown. Hello. And Mr. Stephen, dead as part of the plan but doesn't know it yet, Royston. Hello. Hello, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You both all right, gentlemen? Yeah, yeah. Happy with your role in my caper? Well, I'm not. I don't don't have much to say about about it, really. Quite unhappy. You've got me concerned now. (laughs) Well, you know... I might pull out. Well, you dare do that, but you can always be replaced. You know what happens when you try and pull out of caper. I quite like 100,000 Gs, though. 1,000 Gs? Gs. Is that what they... Gs? That's things. Don't they call them that? Who? Them. (laughs) (laughs) 100,000... Oh, no. 1,000 Gs. I don't know. You're using some unit... A hundred Gs. Well, it means grands, I think. Oh, right, fair enough, yeah. Okay. I can't remember how much... The, anyway, yeah. You'd like a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. But you're willing to risk becoming... Permanently <laughs> deceased. Well, we'll no doubt get up, get into the structure of heist gangs at some point Indeed. during this podcast. But I'll just say uh, hello and welcome to any of our new listeners. I think there might be some out there. And hello, as always, to our old friends. So let me get the usual podcasty stuff out of the way. If you could share, rate, review the podcast on whatever app you use, especially Apple Podcasts or iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. We don't have a Patreon system, but if you'd like to contribute financially, then you could consider buying us a digital coffee at ko-fi.com slash hark87podcast, and anything we get will go back into the costs of running the show. So... I don't like doing all that podcasty appeal stuff, and I'm not advertising mattresses like almost every other podcast. But I'll we we'll, could advertise mattresses. As a lot of podcasts seem to be uh, mattress advertising heavy. All right, I uh, bought a mattress topper this week. I, I, well, I, I, flipping out! I, I actually bought a mattress uh, last weekend. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, if only we got sponsorship. Because <laughs> it could have been good, couldn't it? Yeah, we could, we could be endorsed. I just got rid of a mattress, but I'm buying a sofa bed, Ooh. so it's not far too far removed. Well, I'm a big fan of mattresses. I, I feel like we've probably missed a trick by not getting involved in this. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that was... Oh. Well, you two could have arranged it with the people you bought your mattresses well, from. True. Tell them next time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, let's get stuck into uh, Let's Hear It for the Deaf Man, book number 27. We're almost halfway. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. So we can keep that in mind. Next time it'll be an absolute party. We'll be technically past halfway next time. Oh, my Lord. But let's have a look at what uh, Ed McBain, Evan Hunter, was up to around the time that this came out. This came out in the... Well, the copyright for this was 29th of January, 1973. So it's an early part of 1973 novel. There are two 87th Precinct books out in 73. First time in ages that there's an overlapping year. But let's have a look what 73 brought for McBain. There was a novel by Evan Hunter called Come Winter, which was a sequel to the novel Last Summer. That makes sense. From a few years before. 
which in which apparently a glamorous ski resort becomes the setting for unspeakable evil in this, quote, chilling, fascinating novel. As far as I understand it, last summer was about a bunch of teenagers discovering themselves, discovering each other, and just being horrible, self-involved little gits. And this is them a bit more grown up being grown up little gits. Mm. But I've not read them. There was a TV program called Of Men and Women, and there was a section in that called The Interview, which was written by Evan Hunter. Mm-hmm. That was a pilot for a new series uh, I don't think ended up being made. But that was based on one of his short stories in from Playboy magazine called The Sardinian Incident. <laughs> Not The Sardine Incident. Yeah. That's a different thing. That was more embarrassing, that. <laughs> that was just a lot of coughing and small bones. 1973 also sees the publication of Hail to the Chief, which is the next book we'll be looking at. There's also the short story version of Sadie When She Died in Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine. And in Seventeen Magazine, which I think he published something in the last time we talked about it, he he publishes a story called Weeping for Dustin. Weeping for Dusty Bin. (laughs) Well, there's another slice of British ephemera. We all still are. Wow. So he foresaw... The death of Dusty Bin. Yeah. Okay. Ooh, you know, there's no limit to... The casual uh, listener will just be receiving yeah, all sorts of strange like information. Mm. What I think is strange, at the point where he's most often he's writing for Playboy, he's also started writing for Seventeen, the, the teen magazine as well. He clearly felt he had a, a grasp on the human condition, no matter what age yeah, you were, oh, yeah. or how many boobs you wanted to see. That's to do with Playboy. <laughs> Move on from that. But that's that's basically it. It's a handful of little things in 73. But like I say, two 87th Precinct books out that year. No mean feat. No. Indeed. I have a feeling that this one was possibly rushed out. And I don't necessarily mean anything about the quality of it. Mm. But this is the year after the film of Fuzz came out. Ah. And I think with him and the producers probably anticipating a huge smash hit. You know, Burt Reynolds, Yul yeah. Brynner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raquel Welsh I mean what what could go wrong what could yeah what could go right it's uh, <laughs> I think basically he wrote this to provide this, the source material for a, a sequel ah that would make sense so because and the information I've got to back that up is that uh, duh, 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 duh. New York Times April 23rd 1972 it was said that Hunter and the producer Jack Farron had been contracted to produce a sequel to Fuzz called let's hear it for the deaf man so he clearly wrote it in 1972 quite quickly Hmm. i don't know whether that comes across in the book other than the little sideways glances towards the film of fuzz that are littered throughout it Hmm. i don't know whether it would have worked as a sequel as well but you know maybe we could speculate that as we go along in his archive we've got a couple of rough drafts final draft a couple of Short novelette versions of it, which I don't think were published anywhere. One called Catwalk, which presumably is to do with the cat burglar. And one called The Jesus Case, which is to do with the Jesus Case. But I don't think they ever found a home as short stories in Manhunt or anything like that. Steve-O particularly might be happy to hear that an abridged version of this book was published in the July 1972 edition of Argosy magazine. Oh, fantastic. Would you like to tell the nice ladies and gentlemen and listening people some of the stuff that was in that issue of Argosy? I I could tell you without even looking. (laughs) This is 1972, remember. It's getting a bit more sophisticated, we think. Watchdog for Justice, the sweet smell of dynamite. See, I don't even want to know what that's about. (laughs) Roy... 
Bongarts wrote, There ain't no such animal. Oh, that sounds amazing. I choked. I was so <laughs> On excited. top of Old Smokey by Jesse S. Grigg. I want to go back to these fake animals. Well, uh, fake animals. Uh, if you think you know American wildlife, prepare for a big surprise. Oh, that's quite good. Follow the... Yeah, well, uh, a tour guide... Uh, who rides in your family car? Hey. It's a bit weird, isn't family it? Enjoy family. a national park tour with an ingenious new tape cassette system. Ingenious. Oh, God, it's got all sorts, hasn't it? Welcome to Yellowstone Park. I presume it would start like that. Now you can so. attend full-scale reenactments of American Revolutionary War battles in Follow the Heritage Trail. Wow. They're really pushing the great outdoors. And they are. It all sounds very vigorous. Lots of fresh air. Yes. Hunting and fishing with uh, Jill Poust. Well, there you go. Yeah, All sorts great. of... Uh, yeah, no pictures, though, which sometimes... You know, no, I, well, the cover the wasn't very really exciting, I don't think. Yeah. No. I think the cover was a wraparound picture of a revolutionary battle. Oh, to, well. To illustrate yeah. that thing. Oh, OK. It's Not a picture does... of, a uh, like, a great brown bear or something with, like, a big red X in it to say, <laughs> this doesn't actually exist. No. <laughs> big surprise. No, none of that very... Uh, Man fighting a shark stuff on either. Information within. I wish I could find out what these mysterious animals were that they were. Quite. Well, there aren't any. I think that's the gist of it. Oh, you're saying this? You're suggesting that the the surprise is there are no animals in America. They, they don't exist. No. All of Con, Contrary to what you <laughs> might believe. Yeah. Well, anyway. Anyway, let's hear it for the deaf man or the abridged version, novelette version. Found its home in there. So I but without sight of the actual thing. I can't tell you what aspect of the book it was. Hmm. I did find a couple of reviews. One in the Times, the Times of London, that is, Mm -hmm. not the New York Times. I have got a New York Times one. I'll come up on that. Which is quite a nice one by, um, I was going to say it's by Hamish Hamilton. No, that's the publisher. Written by H.R.F. Keating. Well, he's the... H.R.F. Keating's the guy who writes the, the Indian police stories. Uh, the Inspector something stories yeah. that I've never read, but always look out on the shelves and think, oh, yeah, that might be I've interesting. got one in my to-read pile. Ah, Intriguing. Well, well, you'll have to report back. Yeah. But he was reviewing crime books anyway for the Times at this oh, point. Right, okay. Makes sense. Yeah. And he seems to like Let's Hear It for the Deaf Man, which would have set you back two of your Earth pounds Oof. in 1972. Uh, three, sorry. Da-da-da-da. Although he does say it's the 22nd book in the series, so he's wrong. What a blunder. These books are as good examples as any going of the police procedural American style. The result is always marvellously easy to read. I just say, except for the mock typing bits, and you skip those. I don't skip oh, them, HRF Keating. Those? That's the procedure writ large. Honestly. Yet it is finally lightweight. Lightweight reading is not to be despised. Hmm. Oh, Steve has shown his picture of a man with a very big beard. Is that HRF Keating? Yeah, he looks like Father Christmas. He does a bit. See, I've, I'm going to have to go back on my word a little bit. Although he seems to be generally in praise of the 87th mm. Precinct, he does say about this book, but when it half promises, as here, there is something more it carries... To be something more, it carries inevitably seeds of disappointment. So he wasn't over-keen on it. No, he's, he's lukewarm, isn't he? Yeah, but it's generally a nice glowing review for the series as a whole. Okay. But in the New York Times, 
our new enemy, Newgate Calendar. Oh. I'm going to give it to Morgan to read out this review because mm. it's not very long. Newgate okay, Calendar. It's hard to see why the Ed McBain books about the 87th Precinct have been so popular through the years. He turns them out by formula, and his 26th title, Let's Hear It From The Deaf Man. Oh, he got that wrong. He did get it wrong. <laughs> what a divvy. You reckon he got it wrong on purpose? Is no exception. The best that can be said is that the prose moves fast, even if it is of the rough-hewn features and flinty blue eyes department. Otherwise, this novel about police routine has nothing to recommend it, and there's a purple patch set piece about the big city that is actually embarrassing. He says that last bit as well. (laughs) It's definitely written in that tone of voice. Yeah, well, that was a very interesting accent you gave him. Um, (laughs) That's definitely how he talks. We've gone from one extreme to the other here. Anthony Bowsher, who absolutely loved McBain, was probably quite important in helping him establish his career through his promotion of those books and now Newgate Calendar just despises him I absolutely hate him yeah I would love to get into the McBain archive the Evan Hunter archive see if there's any letters he wrote to Newgate Calendar I'm surprised he hasn't turned up in a book yet in some form or other well we might might bump into him yeah you never know. But yeah, that's a that's an absolutely probably the most damning just, review we've seen for any it, of them. Like yeah, it, it's more of a hatchet job every time, isn't it? Really? Yeah, he's becoming more and more uh, willing to just uh, stick the boot in. Yeah, he's definitely not actually reading them, and to the point where he's not even bothering to get the title right now. Yeah, I think he's <laughs> flicking through them, isn't he? So there you go. So uh, opinions divided. UK reviewer thinking it was all right. Mm. Uh, Newgate Calendar, absolutely hating it. From what I can gather from my basic straw polling on Twitter mm. and other sites, is some, for some people this is one of their absolute favourite McBain's, mm. like top five Oof. stories. So it's going to be interesting to figure out what we think about it. And before we get stuck into the actual content of it, I will just say it's dedicated in the editions we've got, presumably rededicated now, to Murray Weller, who I presume to be the Murray Weller who worked for the Scott Meredith Literary Agency, who McBain worked for, or Evan Hunter worked for. And I can't find out anything more about him except for what good old Lawrence Block tells us in an article called Those Scott Meredith Days, because he had a similar sort of career path to, to McBain in that sense. And he says, We were all paid in cash. Every Friday, Scott's brother-in-law, the odious Murray Weller, trotted four blocks down the avenue to Manufacturers Hanover, which is a bank, and we got little brown envelopes holding our after-tax earnings for the week. So all we know is that uh, he's had a book dedicated to him, but Lawrence Block considered him odious. <laughs> so that's a bit like uh, yeah, the difference between those two reviews. Someone's dedicated a book to you, someone else thinks you're odious. There you go. So game of contrasts so far, really, Indeed. isn't it? Have we got any initial thoughts on this then? I mean, it, it's it's always good to have another death man novel isn't it uh, you know how, however they stand within the series as a whole they're always going to be entertaining so yeah you know you, you can't go that far wrong can you really whatever newgate Cemetery says yeah newgate. um but you know well we've had a bit of a, a not a funny run we've had uh hail hail the gang's all here which is a standalone weird thing with everyone mm. in it lots of little bits and pieces then we've had sadie when she died which was an absolute storm mm. that we rated really, really highly. Now we're into 
a re- returning character, although it's only his third appearance. Mm. Mm. I think the fundamental thing is, if this is supposed to be a police procedural and very realistic, how realistic is it that <laughs> the deaf man even exists in this world at all and comes back with more and more sort of thoughts of vengeance each time? I think you have to put any thoughts of realism on hold before you even open the 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 cover of a deaf man novel don't you there's there's no attempt at it really yeah yeah not in any of them they get more outlandish i think as they go along don't they too yeah yeah um yeah i well i read it again yesterday and plowed through it all in pretty much one sitting really it's a yeah, it was kind of a book you wanted to know what happened. But mm. It did feel a bit slightly bitty. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, uh, yeah. There was like pretty much, uh, three like standalone stories. Uh, yes. Which, you know, obviously he, he does that on occasions, but uh, he seems to be more going towards having a, a continuous story going through in the recent books, and this seems to be a little bit of a departure from that, I would say. And it's almost, though, I don't know, reading it, it was almost, the deaf man in it is in it so little. <laughs> it, it, you know, yeah. of the three stories, that is almost in third place in terms of prominence. Yeah, definitely. Number mm. of yeah. words. And I'm not sure the caper that he's involved in is, is quite as ludicrous, dastardly, ingenious, it's, as in the other Deaf Man it's, it's books as well. It's not one of his most ambitious or no. well-thought-out efforts, is no, it, I guess? it seems a bit... Yeah, so that, that was a little bit anticlimactic for me, reading it back to like, oh, because I, I couldn't remember quite what his caper was. And when it happened, I thought, oh, right, well, that was never going to work, was it? <laughs> do, do we feel like the other... Plot lines existed first in their separate forms, and then the deaf man's been kind of pasted in to provide a bit of hasty yeah. deaf man content. Maybe, and that goes back to you saying if he if he had to rattle out because I'm sure he had a lot of these short stories, like you say, for you know he must have had absolutely dozens, if not hundreds, of those in, either in his head or actually existing yeah. in text somewhere. Because I so think it'd be it, very unlikely that um, out of the three threads within this book, the deaf man the cat burglar and the Jesus case. I doubt the Jesus case, and we'll get onto what that is mm. in a little bit, would have made would have ended up on the screen no. in, a, in an mm. adaptation of this Quite. book. I think that would have been too much. Yes, yeah. rather. Whereas you could have had the Deaf Man story as your A plot in a film with the cat burglar story as a really good B plot. Although it would have been nice if somehow they interwove. But yeah, they, that would have been handy. Yeah, yeah. And it also had, as well, little bits that seemed quite familiar to recent stories. And you know me, I can't remember <laughs> what even the last one was. But the way the way he cracks the, uh, the, the the girlfriend of the guy with the burnt foot. Yeah. And he cracks, uh, you know, she cracks and then, like, spills the beans and everything. Now, I'm absolutely certain something really similar happened in one we read not so long since where the the partner or the girlfriend is just, you know, all of a sudden just folds and just then gives the lengthy explanation of what's gone on just on a plate to the detectives. That was from um, Uh, Hail, Hail, the Gang's All Here. Mm. It was the story about the guy supposedly supposedly jumping out of the window 
yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It was the girl. So is, that, is that the book before this? Uh, two, two before, yeah. Two before. So, so that was really similar, I thought. That's true, yeah. It yeah. Is. It's a bit about young people hanging around together and just who do you put the pressure on to get the, yeah. the info out of. But the, and the way that, like, yeah, the, the similar character, yeah, that, it just all seemed quite familiar, that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose in police work that's something that would happen though. I mean, someone's I so. someone's going to crack. Aren't well, they? just the way it was, the girlfriend again. Yeah, you know, mm. seemed a bit repetitive. Okay, well, if we we go through basically what's been happening, page one, the deaf man's back, which is brilliant. I love the way this book opens. It's McBain's a a winner with his his opening lines, and I just like the fat balmy breezes <laughs> wafted in off the park across the street puffing lazily through the wide-open windows of the squad room. Fat. I like the idea of a breeze being yeah. fat. I understand what he means. Yep. And he, he begins with a very specific statement of the date. He's got Maya Maya sat at a desk, having a lovely time in the sort of spring, the warm spring air, and the phone goes. And I, and there's a just page one, sort of, as Maya Maya realises who it is, <laughs> the way his entire world sort of goes, oh, Mm. It just crumbles. Everything goes black around him, and it's uh... yeah. Because because whereas uh, Steve Carella actually admits to himself secretly relishing his return, uh, yeah. Maya Maya absolutely hates it, doesn't he? You know, <laughs> yeah, just because it detests him. Yeah. Well, there's an, again later on. There's one bit where Maya's so so the deaf man starts sending them. Yeah, pi- he says he's going to rob a bank with their help. Starts sending them weird photostat <laughs> pictures, and there's a point where. Maya Maya, incapable of putting all the parts together, just gets so frustrated. <laughs> and he says something like, he's a dastardly fiend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, he, he, yeah, he call, doesn't call him like a diabolical fiend something or something. Like that, it, is yeah. quite, it is a very funny line. It that. is quite funny. But yeah, he tells them he's going to rob a bank and then starts sending photos which are reproduced faithfully in the book. Yeah, this is what I don't get, is that if you've got a, uh, if you're going to sort out a caper to rob a bank, a heist or whatever, that you would then... Th- even if you had a sort of desire for revenge against someone who shot you, as Corella shot the deaf man the last time they encountered each other, that you would actually go to that level of introducing that thing that would take your attention away from your main scheme. The bit about getting the police involved, doing what they do to help the scheme, I understand, but the actual warning them about the when and where, mm-hmm. I'm sure they could have got around that a better way than sending loads of duplicate photo stats of... Uh, J. Edgar Hoover and and the like. But there's a way they give him short shrift. They sort of go, oh, right, that might have been the deaf man. Let's um, well, see if he calls back. <laughs> and then which is the next story we next get story in- introduced to? Berkling is out trying to follow up on a spate of burglaries oh, yeah. in a fairly posh apartment block, which are done by a cat burglar. And we learn that the reason he's called a cat burglar is because he leaves a tiny kitten in everywhere he robs an actual alive kitten fast forward to the end it never really gets explained at all that does it no no I think it's just some it's almost like because of the person who's doing it's just taking it as a joke himself yeah. the yeah. character's doing it but it's yeah. Yeah. it's weird it is a bit it certainly is clings out investigating that and then bumps into a burglarised apartment doesn't he Occupied by, and I can't remember her name, well, Miss Blair. Augusta Blair. So this <laughs> is a significant... Kling's got his own plot in this book. He's looking after the um, the cat burglary thread of things, and he meets Augusta Blair. Who, Gussie. Gussie Blair, who is a photographer's model. 
Which is again is quite repetitive. How many bloody photography studios have we been in in the eighty seven basic? Absolutely loads. We do tend to end up there quite loads a lot. I'm loads, guessing loads. the sort of advertising industry and and such um, thriving in the in the precinct. It certainly is. Yeah, down on Hall Avenue, which is uh, a big posh uh, area. But not only that, there is a callback to Doll because Augusta Blair is represented by the Cutler Agency, which is the modelling agency that Tinker Sachs is part of. Yep. So he doesn't just invent a new one, he, he, he world builds, he takes that little opportunity, doesn't linger on it, just, just mentions it. But we're going to see a lot more of Augusta Blair over the next ten years or so. And surely now these two beautiful young people are together, more or less, by the end of this book... That's it for Burton. Really happiness all the way. Eternal bliss. Yeah. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. We won't get into that. I don't really think there's any foreshadowing of things to come in that relationship in this book, but... Um, I've forgotten what happens. Well, well, we'll, we'll get there we will, by yeah. the early 80s. But yeah, so he spends his time investigating this thing, and as the cops of the 8th, 7th uh, want to do, um, goes on a date with her. <laughs> no professional conduct going on with any of these people. It's just yeah, it's a surprise that he got there before Cotton Hawes. Cotton Hawes doesn't have much to do in this book. He's just around a bit. Yeah, yeah. he sort of hovers in the background, doesn't he? Isn't... Yeah, there are quite a few a few different uh, members of the cast here. But uh, and then the third story. The third story is the Jesus case, which is the really, which I think possibly could have been a book in itself had mm. he expanded that one. Seems to be the main one, doesn't it? Seems it's, to... it's the most violent. Yeah. It's pretty grisly, yeah. Oof. And it's also the one where he gets the most sort of social landscape stuff into it mm. as well. More stuff about the city's development, the changing face of certain areas of the city, and how young people are reacting to the world around them. Definitely. My favourite thing here is that he, there's some guys who come in on motorbikes, but whereas we had called them bikers... They're apparently called bikies. I, I found that odd because I've never heard that, I don't think. No. Bikies, yeah. Sounds a bit twee, doesn't it? I'm sure they were bikers in in America. I yeah, I feel certain that they were, yeah, I mean... I can understand you sort of contrast, if you were contrasting hippies to bikies. Sounds like a bit of a scousism, doesn't it? All right, bikey. You <laughs> effing bikey. bikey. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> But yeah, he calls them bikies, which is a, I don't know, but maybe it was a term at the time, maybe that was interchangeable. Who are we to say we weren't there? So that story, the Jesus case, yeah, that's the violent one. Oh, yes. So The main problem in that one is they don't know who the victim is, so he spends the majority of the book finding out who this person is in just a, isn't it an abandoned tenement? Yeah. And there's this fairly hippie-looking guy. Yeah. Nailed, nailed to a wall, basically. Yeah, literally. So he'd been crucified, more or less. The apartment they find him is piled high with with debris and junk and quite a lot of feces and dead rats and all that sort of stuff. And then they've got a body on the wall and then they have an argument with the assistant ME who refuses to, <laughs> to take it down off the wall. There's a great cameo from Monaghan and Monroe. Yeah, they're on Corella's side for once. Yeah. They go and... Uh, <laughs> Sort this guy out, don't they? Yeah, they, they don't come in and uh, take the mickey at all. They literally come in and sort this. It's like, we don't want to be in here anymore because we can't pronounce him dead and write, start our report until you've actually pronounced him dead. And you can't do that if you don't examine him. And he, he's not going to examine him if he's stuck on a wall. 
But, but of course, everyone's just throwing up because it's such a disgusting scene. Yeah. But yeah, they come in and just sort things out. They do. They don't take any guff. No. I believe the phrase goes. Useful for once. Yeah, possibly the only time. Mm. It's all a whirl of stuff, isn't it? They've got mm. this really grisly crime going on. They've got the deaf man who quite early on hasn't fully stated his case, what's going to happen. You've got these burglaries, mm. all of which are taking place on the beat of one particular patrolman mm. who's supposedly very good. Mm-hmm. And there's a nice thing in... in Chapter 2, before the deaf man actually states what he plans to do, which is rob a bank with the police's assistant, specifically half a million dollars. A brilliant squad room scene, which starts with there's a girl who's cut her boyfriend who's in the detention cell, who's claiming she's going to take her top off and say that the police raped her. So she's just making a lot of noise. The phone's going. A patrolman brings in a guy from the park who's been shot with an arrow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is, and that's, there's no follow up on that either. <laughs> no. It's just someone who's shot through. He's like, I thought I was having a heart attack, and I looked down, and there was an arrow through me. <laughs> and then, who else do these bring in? So, some, someone brings in the guy with the arrow. There's two stoned boys who've crashed a car that's been stolen. There's an old Italian lady who's had her purse stolen. All this is going on. This girl's screaming and crying about all sorts of stuff. At the, which point, the deaf man rings up and says, on the last day of April, I'm going to steal $500,000 with your help. Or you're <laughs> going to help me do it, or whatever he says. So that sets us off. And then after that, there's not much more of the deaf man for quite a while, other than his... Uh, his pictures. His pictures he sends in. It's quite a way into the book, isn't it, when it's the, he's then with his his oppers. Yeah, it's not till chapter 8, basically. Yeah. If we just have this sort of... This thread of intrigue of him sending in... What's he sending? So he sends in two pictures of... J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, two of George Washington. Two of George Washington are the next ones as well. Uh, two of a, mi- a Japanese Zero. Yeah, yeah, Japanese Zero plane. Then we finally hear his plan. He's discussing it with his team, which is basically, we're going to find a bank with a drive through Fairly reasonably straightforward, it's straight- isn't it? Is, it? Yeah, it it's- sounds yeah, sounds like a fairly bog-standard kind of bank heist, and you think, oh, that's unimaginative for... Uh, the deaf man, I wonder how these... Um... But then, but... a few chapters later, it's funny reading it back, because you start reading the next chapter, and it's like, this this is just the same, but all the names are different. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then, so the deaf man's having a, almost an exactly the same conversation with a different team a of... A B team. But they're all described, they're all given the same jobs to do. So and you're not quite sound... sure what's going on because he has no. speculated about the possibility of replacing some of the members of the team he'd yeah. been talking to before. So you think, has he fired the entire team? I just don't know. Yeah, it is. It's quite a nice little trick because as I was rereading it while I was putting my notes together, it's like, oh yeah, you could read this and just accept that it was the same group of people or the same gang, the A-team of, of this scheme. But he's replaced some people. Or do I remember what their names were? Even well, I, reading it earlier. Well, yeah, reading it again, I was just thinking, oh, because I, I couldn't remember. I was thinking, oh, does he just rob an identical bank mm. in the same way? And there's some reason why he wants, yeah, at the same time or something. But uh, well, eventually you find out what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at the very, 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 very end. In the meantime, Corella's chasing up around this uh, what they're calling the Jesus case, mm-hmm. 
and it involves he comes across this um, this sculptor while he's asking questions in the neighbourhood this sculptor only sculpts one particular model and this is a girl that he's talked to in one of the coffee shops in the area and he notices this sculpt, sculptor's missing a trainer that was matched the one at the crime scene the sculptor goes out of his way to make himself seem really guilty by yeah saying, <laughs> he goes really defensive all of a sudden doesn't he and yeah. he just kind of gets um gets Corella feeling quite suspicious so he's only himself to blame really yes. yeah but then he's a bit of a uh, a bit of a pain about it as well yeah he's clearly a liar but i think what's quite clever uh, that mcbain does is he here he has a scene earlier on with Kling goes to interview a locksmith Oh, and the locksmith's uh, an old Polish guy, and he says, I don't want to talk to you, and Kling's finding it really hard to get information out of him. But the reason he's given is, was like, I, you know, I'm done with stormtroopers. I came here after the war. I don't want to answer your questions. Mm-hmm. So he's got a sort of legitimate personal reason. Yeah. So that can happen, whereas this other guy that Corella's interviewing is just standoffish and difficult, and it very carefully illustrates mm-hmm. the difference between reactions to the police. Yeah. Like where the Polish guy's got loads of cats yeah. as well, so you think, oh, it's <laughs> got to be this guy. I mean, the mad cat key yeah. man. Yep. He's got the keys, he's got the, the cats. Cat. <laughs> it just um. makes me think of that scene in Police Squad, though, where Frank Drebin's posing as a, a locksmith, and there's a scene in someone's apartment. And someone says, Who are you? How did you get in here? I'm a locksmith, and I'm a locksmith. <laughs> <laughs> Delivered much better, of course, uh, by Leslie Nielsen. But one of the best lines in any comedy ever. <laughs> but he's chasing around with these people, and it finds out it t- ties in with these bikies, and they—it's yeah, not just, that. It just sound weird saying bikies. it out loud. The bikies are in town, yeah. Yeah, heavy metal thunder, bikies. <laughs> It's yeah, it's a really it's an interesting one that Corella's more or less on his own for most of it. Mm, he is that so, so is Kling until he gets palled up with his patrolman buddy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now I'm automatically suspicious when patrolmen start getting quite prominent roles. Yeah. In these, there's always something uh, not quite right with them, is there? Because <laughs> there's another one where the patrolman's. Is it Axe where the patrolman? Yeah. He's a bit dodgy in that, isn't he? There's uh, definitely a yeah there's a, involved in the uh, the crap game. Yeah, prominent patrolman equal dodgy character. Even though the patrolman in this one, Mike Ingersoll, is is seems to be going out of his way. Well, he he's he's supposedly had some commendations for bravery. He's mm-hmm. been pounding the beat for I think it's since 1960. This guy's in his late 30s and hasn't progressed past patrolman, but he's supposed to be very good. Mm-hmm. He comes in to make a special effort with Kling. He does, yeah. They go on a Steak out, yeah, yeah. With walkie talkies, like Richard Dreyfus, and Estevez. Yeah. And oh, yet, yeah. when they're out on steak out, another burglary happens That's as well. And this cat just... burglar, they've much as made of the, the, the skill of cat burglars and the, the admiration that the police have for them. Yeah, if like, you know, one would think if, if a policeman was going to be any kind of criminal, he'd probably want to be a cat burglar. Yes, the sophisticated uh, gentleman thief, absolutely, yeah. So uh, maybe we should leave the resolution of that story up hanging. hanging. If people can't work it out from what we're doing. Well, yeah. Quite how he does it is quite in, in, interesting, though. But the point of that story isn't just for that. It's for get to get Kling together with another, another yeah. lady, which is what happens there. Anyway, even though she's spending all the time with photographers, because she's a model. Mm, that could, yeah, could be something. Yeah, the Jesus case ends up 
in a load of violence as mm. well. So it's, well, self-defense violence on the part of Corella and Maya, who he takes oh, yeah. with him. Shootings, shooting going on. Shooting a, a, a big man called Ox. Mm. Ox the bikey. Yeah. So One it, of their mates dobs them all in, though, doesn't he? Oh, well, he, he tells them. Somebody's helpful, isn't he? This it's one where Corella's throwing his weight around in terms of the law. So he, he does a lot of stuff. So even though there's these big bikers knocking around, he, he threatens people with things like parking violations, litter violations, uses all those little sort of crowbar police procedures to sort of try and get people to tell him what he wants or at least be a bit more uh, pliable in their response to <laughs> him anyway, which is quite good. Yeah, because he's got a lot of uh, a lot of circumstantial evidence place in the sculptor at the scene, hasn't he? Yeah, but no real evidence as such. There is a good bit where he has to go and get a court order in order to seize this other <laughs> shoe that he's seen, which in a, in essence gives him the right to arrest a shoe, <laughs> which is a, an interesting turn of phrase. Yeah, but I think what's that's interesting there though is is McBain keeps Corella out of the deaf man plot. Mm basically, other than when he's in looking at the pictures, yeah, trying yeah. to figure stuff yeah, out. Because yeah. he gets a picture then, they get a picture of, um, who else do they get? After Somebody. That? Uh, Vilma Banky? The actress Vilma no, Banky. I, I meant to look up uh, and then completely forgot. I think just significant early silent film mm. star. Yeah. So she was in a few of the quite big 1920s mm. uh, silent movies. Burns has got a good line about her because he says something like, oh, I remember her in the... Uh, in the seen her in a few films, then like well, well I was a very young man, <laughs> of course. Oh yeah, well, eighty seventh precinct dating is an interesting one in this book because <laughs> obviously every time the deaf man returns, they have to think back to when he was last there. And this book, I went through, and there's quite a lot of little uh, Easter eggs for the eighty seventh precinct fan in this book, <laughs> such as when he Corella's thinking about the deaf man in the at the start of the book, he he also starts thinking about Teddy Corella, his wife, who's deaf. And obviously the comparison there. But he's also thinking about when she got a little black butterfly tattooed on her shoulder, <laughs> which is in the Con Man. So that was donkeys years ago oh, yeah. in their time. He obviously, they think about the heckler, the first appearance of the deaf man, which is said to be more than 10 years ago. Mm. So that ties the books more or less to release date. Yeah, he hasn't really started playing around with the uh, elasticity of the, the, the timeline Not as just he's going to no. in a, a bit. Yeah. Obviously, I said there's a reference to Doll about the Cutler Agency. There's also a reference to Till Death as well, because it says that Corella hadn't been in a church for 13 years since his sister was married. Mm-hmm. So that dates that one as well, which I think ties so in. So they pretty much, uh, until, yeah, so they're letting them age fairly mm. normally then. Well, sort of. They, they can't possibly be, because Maya's frozen in time anyway. <laughs> But we got we got an absolute age of Corella in the last book, didn't we? We did. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and it was it, it was something like forty. Was he five or something? Wasn't he? Because it it dated him, saying about the in the Second World War. Uh, we worked it out anyway, yeah, and, he, and he was older than you thought. But perhaps not if if that age was say forty five then it would have put him in his early 30s at the beginning of the series, which would be actually reasonably correct. He then just really... Yeah, he never never gets any older than 45. He really isn't going to get any older than that, is he, I don't think. No, so he does allow them, thinking about it, he does allow them to age Mm. until, like, now-ish. And then it's presumably at some point, around the mid-70s, I want to stop them aging. Yeah, Yeah, this can't go on. 
Because Kling's always young, pretty much as well. Yeah, he's always he? the kid, isn't he? Comparatively. Yeah. So if he's gone from being say twenty-two and now he's thirty-two, then he certainly never gets any older mm. than that. So oh, we just have to keep our eye on that. I think we as will, we go yeah. along, I don't we think it's one of those things that's sort of there but not there. <laughs> yeah. So the Vilma Banky thing, yeah, it does date uh, Pete Burns a little bit. And they also get pictures sent of, who is it, uh, Martin Van Buren. Oh, of course, yeah. As well as the other one that they get sent. They think he's uh, Charles Dickens, don't they? Well, this is, you know, they'd have had to go down the library. Well, that's what they do have to do, isn't it? They have to go down the library to check out their hunches on who these pictures are to work out who they are. He does resemble my uncle. No Google reverse image look up there. He does (laughs) resemble my uncle Morris in New Jersey. (laughs) So Newgate Calendar was very cross about the chapter 10, which is the chapter that is literally just the um, the city as a woman section mm. again. Which, yeah, I suppose it's it's become a trope of McBain. And it's what a lot of people think about McBain, who sort of casual readers. It's, oh, yeah, he's the one who's always talking about the city as a woman and the mm. city as a bitch and all this sort of stuff. And, yeah, it's a bit of a funny thing. But it's not embarrassing, I don't think. It's, 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 it's colour. It's, yeah. It's attitude of the author as well, or the authorial voice, the McBain voice. And that's just a chapter where he talks about the city, Hmm. a scene in which, completely unrelated, a toilet attendant assaults his wife, a kid just interrupts someone's chess game in the park, a junkie's trying to buy drugs off someone, and a a woman who's been cut by a husband who's trying to kill himself and gets shot. It's just a, it's all the lovely springtime <laughs> colour of the city. Yep, some little vignettes. Otherwise, unrelated to uh, to everything else that's going on. But if we leave Corella to solve the Jesus case and we leave yeah. Kling to solve the cat burglary case, we better have a t- quick chat then about how the deaf man thing sort of mm. ultimately ends up um, in terms of is he successful, the deaf man? Is this the last we hear of him? Does he retire on his $500,000? Yeah, it's all fine. It yeah, goes, goes off without a hitch. It's great. No. <laughs> no. I mean, Corella only comes into his scheme basically be- at the point where he needs someone's police ID, so he mugs him, essentially. After Corella's taken Teddy to see an art house film that mm-hmm. is completely incomprehensible to her because she can't read the lips in it, <laughs> which is a bit weird. I do like the way it plays out. I, I do like the deaf man's scheme, but it's not super clever. It's not one of his strongest, <laughs> is it? I, I think, uh, I imagine he was kicking himself for a bit after... Yeah. Everything goes a bit sour. And I do have a bit of a problem with how quick it all takes place because he sets a time through his cryptic message of when it's going to happen, but then it happens before then, or a thing happens before mm. then. Which, but it's only like an hour and a half before. And the police involvement in that first thing seems to be all over and done with yeah. within an hour and a half. Well, the other when thing there's been shooting they've, they've, they've and bodies, corpses all over the place, yeah, haven't they? Yeah. Glass smashed and stuff. Well, that's the thing I can't, I couldn't understand. They, they, they smashed the window in the first one at like, it's not even an hour and a half, is it? It's like a half past ten. Yeah, but the other things, it, yeah, well, I can't even remember now. It's, yeah, it's, it's very close together. It's so they smashed the window then, and then in the second attempt, they smash it again. Yeah, it's, it's, they mentioned the glazier's already been. It's like how quickly that's is your one. Very efficient glazier, yeah, and and you you you'd imagine that the place would be crawling with police for the rest of the day if there'd been sort of corpses strewn about the place and yeah, it's yeah that's not very realistic I don't think, and that's where it it falls. Yeah, they hit early when almost an hour ago, so it's less than an hour, and the police have gone 
They've fixed a window already. Mm. And they're just back to business, which you could imagine, really, that the bank would probably be closed to business for the remainder of that day. So the manager lets somebody else in his office with an... With another model investment. Well, you know, the second time, it's the person posing as Corella, isn't it? Oh, of course it is, yes. Uh, Corella yes, goes... Sorry, Corella, this is bit. me saying Corella in speech marks bunny ears. Corella goes into the manager's office with, like, a follow-up. <laughs> You're talking about efficiency. Like the, police, like, the police would send down a detective to say, now, was everyone very courteous to you? We want to count all the money. <laughs> and can we count the money? Yeah. Just fill in this feedback survey. I'm just going to count, or go into your vault and count all the cash. Yeah. And I'll be out of your hair. The caper pretty much gets foiled because the deaf man is surprised that the police are still around a bank that was burgled less than an hour ago. Yeah. Perhaps not the criminal mastermind we once thought. <laughs> yeah, which to all of us three doesn't seem that surprising. In terms of criminal masterminds, he's about on a level with like Sideshow Bob in The Simpsons, in that he never actually successfully commits any of the crimes that he sets out to commit. No. no. McBain describes the deaf man as being... Because he's always described as being like a Moriarty. Yeah. But Moriarty was a grand, like, you know, the big fat spider in the middle of a web controlling, mm. you know, crime over, you know, the city, over the country, wasn't he? Yeah. Whereas the deaf man, and this is how McBain describes him, is more like the Joker. Yeah. yeah. He just comes in and causes chaos. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. He's, just a, he's just a pain in the arse. It's kind of, yeah, I mean... I'm sure he's frustrated that nothing ever quite ends up coming off as planned, but the, the goal does always appear to be a bit more to just wreak havoc, and you kind of get the impression he's probably fairly happy if he's just done that. Yeah. And yeah. whether he'd actually want full revenge on Corella or not, or just prefers to mess him about. Well, he could look him up in the bloody phone book, couldn't he? If he, if he, he just wanted it, personal, you know, but it, yeah, it's... It, but then he'd be more, losing his favourite antagonist, wouldn't he? So, um... He, he, he likes leading him in his profession on a merry dance rather than just him, like, personally. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely. like the master and the doctor in Doctor Who. The master can scarcely comprehend of a universe in which the doctor's not there trying to stop him. Yeah, oh, you know, they're the two forces of things. I like uh, when he's chatting to, to his A squad and he's on about, and the guy says, well, why why, why aren't you going in there? Because, well, you know what I look like. It's like, well, what do you know what I look like? And he's like, but, uh, uh, well, you'll be going in disguise, won't you? And the guy goes, oh, yeah, well, I suppose so. And the deaf man says, uh, he, he says something like, you know, the deaf man... He's basically shave your head, going like your yeah. like your Brinner, but with a moustache. And then he says, uh, he says to himself <laughs> something like, he, he's, he wouldn't have known what he'd have said if he said, "Well, why don't you go in with a shaved <laughs> and a moustache?" But I would have come up with something because I'm really good at b- blagging. Yeah. <laughs> it's all a little bit on the hoof, isn't it? Really. Yeah. But also his relationship with the woman in that first team, who's like this. He just it, describes this terrible woman with a. Awful voice and everything, no redeeming features in the deaf she man. Says just sends a shiver down his yeah, spine. Yeah, and, he, and, and it, it, he's like you're just going, oh no, oh no, no, no. oh no. Yes, because he's normally a sexy, a yeah. sexy devil, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Mm. Clearly, not in this case. And he was just impossible. Yeah. Like. It's, it's a weird one. Yeah. I just don't know how much of of the experience of Fuzz and knowing that Yule Brinner was the deaf man and if. if it's weird. He just writes this reference into your Brinner, 
Fuzz is more comedic than the book is, even though the book's a bit of a farce. Mm. It's it's all a bit of a strange thing to think that this could have been a film. Mm. Anyway, things wrap up. It ends. It's not too horrifically tragic in the end, other than for the poor Jesus case guy. And I think we really, we need to start to sum things up. I'll uh, pass Steve-O the do, digital yeah. Kenneth score archive right. display. Yeah, well, there we go. Look at that. Because we've Oof. been on a bit of an upturn, we haven't have, we? We have a massive... Well, a bit, yeah, a bit of a big upturn, I would say. You need to colour in the top five ones for, yeah, I for future reference. I need to do some dynamic graphing. Ooh. If you give me the data, I'll be able to do something uh, <laughs> more interesting, I would think. Kenneth's well, not interesting. Well, well, I mean, in terms of... Uh, I can't remember what we oh scored last time. Something like... I think we were up in the 90s, weren't we, with uh, Sadie when she died? We were very Maybe high, very, yeah, about 90, maybe 89, something like that, yeah. Okay, so we're on an upward trend at the moment. From the, the low of 80 million eyes, the trend is up towards Sadie when she died, which is one of our peaks. The thing is now, I know that loads of people really, really love this book, but then loads of people love The Deaf Man, and I do enjoy yeah. him being here, so I'll... I'll go into summing up mode first, and I'll take all the uh, the flack for, <laughs> for this. I enjoy the book. It's very quick to read. I like the, the three separate cases are all interesting and different enough. The deaf man is enjoyable, but he perhaps doesn't appear in it enough, exactly like you say, Steve-O. So we don't get to see much of his... Um, Dastardliness. Yeah, his machinations being played out, his preparation, his... Not like in Fuzz where there's like plans and maps and, and mm. they have to do a lot of setting up. Same with a heckler where that's all about the actual doing of, of getting ready to, to carry oh, yeah. off the scheme. We don't really have that in here. So he becomes a bit more enigmatic. But we know he's coming back as fans of the 87th Precinct and he's, I think he's uh, saving some of his more crazier schemes for later. Yeah. In the- <laughs> I seem to remember he has one that's totally... Terrorist in the yeah. Is his next appearance going to be um, uh, if, was it eight, eight black, black horses? horses? I think so. I, yeah. think I, I seem to recall that being an absolute barnstormer. So I'm looking forward to that one. I have a feeling I haven't read that one yet. So yeah, it'd be good when we get to that one. But yeah, it's something for me a little unsatisfactory about the book. Not Newgate calendar levels of unsatisfactory. Because I, as an 87 Precinct fan as well, I appreciate all the little callbacks. Mm. I like Maya getting frustrated <laughs> at the uh, dastardly schemes. I'm interested to see what happens with Kling. But it's certainly not one of my absolute favourites, especially not after Sadie when she died, which is a basically a single story of that's really, really, really good. So I am going to give it 75 Police Shields. Mm, okay. Respectable, but... Not in the not in the uh, top flight. I think I'll go with Stevo. Well, you've come up with exactly the same score that I was thinking before you started that. And a ah. lot of your comments, I would wholeheartedly agree with. Yeah, I think the Deaf Man's he's least impressive in this, from what I remember, <laughs> compared to all the others. And given he's such a, a great character, you kind of want to wheel him out when he is most diabolical, really. But yeah. here, he just seems to have a fairly idiotic plan that doesn't work is this like what he does it, all, all the time he's not in the books yeah. is he carrying out really rubbish schemes <laughs> yeah. that don't work how is he how is he yeah, living day to day he's never making any money so yeah um but then again there is a lot to like about it and i absolutely beasted through it yesterday hmm. in a page turning i want to know 
who, who hammered what, when, the guy where, on how? the wall. Yeah, yeah, who the cat burglar was, and indeed what um, Deaf Man's plan was. But when I got to the end about Deaf Man's plan, I was thinking, all oh, right, no wonder I couldn't remember it, because it's not <laughs> actually that <laughs> dastardly, really. So, yeah, 75, I think, 7.5 uh, okay. out of 10 kind of entry into the canon. <laughs> And we will turn to Morgan Brown. Okay, yeah, I mean, I, I do very much agree with everything that you've said. I, I don't want to be a naysayer against this book because I, I don't want to give any credit to the, that <laughs> rotter of a critic. That said, I mean, it's it's a little bit flimsy compared to um, some of the other entries in the series, isn't it? But it's the Deaf Man. It's really good fun. Mm. That's always good. There's, there's a lot to enjoy there. I mean, realism goes out the window when the deaf man's involved anyway, so I think some of the flimsiness totally. you can you can definitely overlook. Um, very enjoyable, not absolutely peak series. I'm going to go for 70 police shields. 70? Ooh. What do we do with our with Kenneth? Uh, do we round down? Yes, we do. We yeah, do contrary to well, logic, <laughs> we can... mathematical... Um, yeah. So what we're rounding down to? We're rounding down to a grand to grand total. <laughs> grand total. That sounds like a Star Wars character. Um, <laughs> grand Master Stotel. <laughs> grand Master Stotel. I watched Return of the Jedi. Perhaps he's one of those guys in Return of the Jedi where the Emperor's being a bit of a dick at the end, <laughs> and like he chats to. He has a couple of mates. The Emperor. They'd never say anything. Perhaps, perhaps they he, do a podcast. Well, no, perhaps he's one of them. <laughs> oh, maybe. We could look it up. Yeah. He could be. He could be in one of the new ones. He'll turn up in The Mandalorian or something. Ooh. Anyway, what was I saying? 73 police shields right. for Let's are. Hear It for the Deaf Man. Well, it's respectable, I think. Yeah. It sounds it is, about yeah. right. We continue in the mountain range look of the scoring anyway, because that's a bit of a plunge from the giddy heights that we've been at in the last few. Certainly is. So, anyway, we'll be moving on to uh, another different type of story. Again, I keep saying that there's a run of, like, or I keep thinking that there's, like, a run of similar types of things, but there isn't. He does keep throwing in different yeah, types he really of stories. Yeah, And as I mentioned at the top of the show, the next story, which is, again, 73, is Hail to the Chief. So, satire coming out in uh, <laughs> McBainland. That pesky Nixon won't know what's hit him. Well, indeed. <laughs> so... Join us on the bonus podcast and we will look at our editions of the book, uh, the book covers of the original releases of it, and also who you have suggested for casting as the deaf man. <laughs> as expected, this got quite a big uptake of suggestions, really. So we'll join you. We'll join you. You can join us. You put some of the effort in for <laughs> once. Join us in the bonus episode. If not, we'll see you again for Hail to the Chief. Goodbye. Goodbye. Fairly well. <laughs> <laughs>